Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Triangulation is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Triangulation with Tom Merritt and Leo Laporte. Episode 10, recorded April 6th, 2011. Corey Doctorow. Triangulation is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com slash triangulation. I am so excited. Uh, welcome to Triangulation, Leo Laporte with Tom Merritt. I'm so excited about our uh, guest today. Have you met Corey before? I, I've uh, never met Corey in person. I've interviewed him twice before. He was on The Real Deal one time to talk about copyright uh, and DRM. He was on uh, a Sword and Laser, and we talked to him about his books. He's just fan. Oh, yeah, because he's a science fiction author. Yeah, yeah. We did uh, uh, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom as one of what our Sword and Laser books. That's the one where he uh, creates the concept of woofy. Yeah. Which is, I, I, I guess, the currency of, of reputation. Yeah, and so people are going to know him from a lot of different areas. They may say, oh, that's the guy that writes at Boing Boing. Or they right, may say, boing, oh, that's boing, the guy yeah, who used to work at the EFF fighting DRM. Right. Or they may say, oh, that's my favorite sci-fi author. Right. Yeah, he's, he's all of the above. Yeah. He's actually a kind of an old-fashioned thing, which is a public intellectual. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't have them here in the United States anymore. We used to. They still have him in Europe, and that's probably why he lives in England now. And it's why we're recording this show at the ungodly hour of 9 in the morning, <laughs> because it's, it's tea time for Corey. And so right. let's get Corey Doctorow on the horn here. I say that uh, in a British fashion, on the blower. Yeah. But before we do, I would like to say... Hey, we've got a sponsor. Hey, all right. Good news. That means we can do more of these. It's not, we're not doing it for free. It was pro bono for a long time. Uh, we want to thank Squarespace, though, for saying, hey, we like triangulation. We'd like to support it uh, by putting an ad on it. Uh, now, I, I'm glad to talk about uh, Squarespace because I just think they're a great company. Really cool fellas, Anthony and Dane over there. Uh, and they, uh, they started Squarespace when they were college students. They were looking for a better content management system. They realized nothing out there fit the bill, so they wrote it. Uh, and, uh, and not only did they write it, they wrote uh, server software to go along with it. They're using very sophisticated Java VPS systems. So you get hosting, superb hosting. I, I, would, I venture to say the best hosting out there. In addition to a software that's running on that hosting service that makes it so easy for you to create a website. A website that looks gorgeous because they start with 60 plus designer styles. Easy for you to customize just by sliding little sliders around. Of course, all the widgets that you could possibly want uh, for all the social media that you do. Your Flickr, your Twitter, your Facebook, all of that. And these widgets are nice because uh, they're very easy for you to, to supply uh, you know, into your blog just by you place them there by drag and drop and then use the sliders to fix it now of course if you know css or javascript the sky's the limit here's my favorite little widget this is just the arbitrary rss widget which means you could put anything including your podcast in here just by subscribing to the rss feed this is just sophisticated stuff they, they by the way version six i've got a little preview version six is on its way and you're going to be excited if you want to see what squarespace can do for you go to squarespace.com slash triangulation I'm sorry it's so many letters. T and I know a lot of geeks don't know how to spell. T-R-I-A-N-G-U-L-A-T-I-O-N. Probably that's the one word geeks do know how to spell is triangulation. Click the green button that says try it for free. You can try it for two weeks. You don't need to give them a credit card or anything else. Uh, you get the full site. 
all you have to do is give them four things, a name, a password, an email address in case you forget the password, and then to keep robots from creating sites, they have a little, actually about the easiest CAPTCHA I've ever seen. I doubt that stops any robot. But then you're in, and you have, for two weeks, complete access. Now, you may already have a Squarespace site, but here's what's cool about this. You can, um, you know, friends and family who don't get it, perhaps, that they need their own website. They say, I've got a Facebook page. That's all I need. No, you need your own site. So you could set up a site for them and say, look how cool this is. I made this for you. You could give it to them. It'd be a good, a good gift. Yeah. I gave this to you. And then if you want to subscribe $12 a, a, a month, including hosting and software, actually less if you, if you pay for a longer period, it's just fantastic. I really am a fan, and I know you will be too. Try it. That's all I ask. Just try it. Do, do use this special URL so that we get credit. Squarespace.com slash triangulation. Uh, I want Squarespace folks to know that the triangulation listeners are fans. Squarespace.com slash triangulation. We thank them for their support. And now, Tom Merritt, I shall get... And, wow. And now, Tom Merritt, I shall get Mr. Cory Doctorow on the blower. Yes, ring him up, will you? <laughs> ring, ring. Knock him up. <laughs> no, no, I don't think knock him up is the right. Well, it, it, <laughs> Knock on his door. There you are. I was like, Leo, you've grown a beard and lost 30 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yes, actually, I'm on the Doctorow plan, actually. I'm, I'm hoping to yeah. have the Low same carp. success. Yeah, the same success you had. Look how great Cory looks. People don't even remember, probably, when you were a little chunkier. I just found a video, actually, from um, the TV Ontario archives. They just <clears throat> they just published their old archives, uh, and um, I, I there was uh, there was a video from when I was like 22, and I was really big. I I actually looked, I think, about 10 years older than I look now. Yes, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I remember yeah. when you uh, when you started doing this, and uh, I loved how you described it. You said, "I'm I'm hacking my metabolism." Yeah. Well, you know, it did feel like that at the time. And, I, you know, I've given it a lot of th thought since. And I think it's partly because, you know, my, my family, they're all a little chunky. And my mom had uh, grown up with, uh, you know, sort of received wisdom about, about um, nutrition and weight. So she really felt like uh, if, you, um, if you want to lose weight, you should eat low-fat things. And low-fat right. things were all high carbs. So here I was for 25, 30 years whenever I, I felt like my weight was getting out of control, rushing out and giving up the, uh, the me, meat and me the... Me uh, too. And all of that stuff and having like a bowl of pasta and a salad for dinner. Mm-hmm. Non-fat. Yeah. What a yeah. mistake. So that was the revelation, right? Is that, is that you know, and it, and it was a twin revelation. It was both the fact that the weight just started to just disappear and also that um, my satiety was so much... Uh, more ready, readily come by. I, I found oh, that yes. you know I would eat just a little yeah. and 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 feel full as opposed to when I ate carbs and I'd eat some and and then I never just get enough. More. Yeah, and, and your body's just like I, I still need something else. And dieting was, yeah. is just uh, excruciating oh, as yeah, a result because sure. you're starving the whole time. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the thing about um, Atkins versus or, or or any kind of low carb diet versus say uh, uh, um, moderate fat low carb diet where you you eat i don't know a lot of other stuff that's kind of healthier but but maybe less filling and so on it's just a harder regime to stick to oh, it's almost impossible uh, as know. i as i have proved to myself many time time yeah, and time I mean, again compliance is like if you don't consider compliance in in health uh you're not really right. um you're not really answering health problems right, right? i mean this is why for example 
people who are on retroviral cocktails in places where they can all be combined into a single dose as opposed to having to take them at different times during the day or antibiotics that can be that are combined into a single dose as opposed to being spaced out over the course of a day they might have exactly the same medical effect but the difference is that the compliance is higher and, and compliance is a big part of it i mean we're not machines so I, I, of course, our chat room is going crazy right now saying, can you not talk about diets? Because unfortunately, <laughs> we've done this quite a bit in the past because uh, Paul Therat was the one who got this whole thing started, our Windows guy, and, uh, and uh, it's been spreading like wildfire. But I want to talk yeah. to you about things like with a little help. So we, yeah. will, we will get started now. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Triangulation. Tom Merritt, Leo Laporte, in a little early this morning because our guest lives in uh, Great Britain. And That's for right. him, it's a little late. It's the future. It's the future. It's the it's the first beautiful day of spring. It really is the future. Oh, I'm really like sorry I'm to living in next month. I'm sorry to bring you inside then. Yeah, I've already. I had a bike ride to the pool. I'm still doing my physiotherapy for my hip surgery. Oh dear, I didn't know you had. It. But let's first of all, let's welcome yeah. Corey Doctoro, a tri triangulation, a guy who has been a longtime friend of the Twit Network, uh, co-editor of Boing Boing. He's a well-known blogger, science fiction author. A uh, fighter for uh, Creative Commons and uh, and uh, against DRM, and always a welcome guest on uh, on our network. Hi, Corey. Hi. Well, thanks for having me on. I, I, it's great. I, you know, having come back to the UK, I, I feel like I'm kind of separated from all things Californian. It's always great to to get a chance to jump on in something real time with people on the other side of the planet. Well, we love having you. And one of the reasons it's been difficult, of course, is you have a daughter. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and Posey is, uh, what, three years old now? She's three years old, fat and sassy, very happy, <laughs> uh, really fun, uh, into pretending and stories. And oh, I'm great. teaching her dirty Calypso songs. I taught her the Harry Belafonte song about where babies come from, Man Piaba. She's awesome singing it. That's great. Her full uh, name, Posey Emmeline Fibonacci Nautilus Taylor Doctorow. That's right. I like the Fibonacci part. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, you know, just like everyone with a million middle names, whether they're, you know, North American or, or from, say, um, South India or Spain or whatever, we just call her by her first name. We call her Posey or we call her Poe more often, really. Poe's great. Posey's great. Po yeah. And as a prose author, I think it's cool that you named her Poesy. Now, is Fibonacci the, yeah. the word Fibonacci or the actual series? <laughs> that's right yeah it's just 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 a sum symbol and some some math wouldn't no, that be funny the actual it's the actual name or the actual name it's uh you know we, we actually we had this long discussion about what names we were going to have for and we had lots of different ideas and some were silly and some were serious but what we realized somewhere along there was that we would agree more readily if we could just um uh, expand the number of middle names, that there wasn't really any cost to it. It's not like I introduced myself with my middle names. You know, hello, my name is Corey Ephraim Doctorow. I mean, very few people, unless you're like C. Everett Coop, very few people ever mention their middle names. It's essentially only if you assassinate a world leader that you get your middle name acknowledged <laughs> That's right. in or any serial, way. serial killers. Serial killers. Yeah. Serial yeah. killers, yeah, yeah. The occasional, the occasional movie star. Right. Yeah. So, so you know, she could have as many middle names as she wanted. She could call herself by all, as as many or as few of them as she wanted at any time in her life. I mean, who among us as a teenager didn't wish we had a different identity? If she wants to change herself to something really boring, like Emma, short for Emmeline, she can. Or if she wants to be crazy and be notchy, she can too. Um, notchy. It's entirely well, Fibbo. Fibbo. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I don't know where to start with you, Corey. Can I ask you actually something I've never asked you before, which is how Boing Boing got started? 
Well, I wasn't involved in starting it. it. It actually started as a print magazine in the late 80s in Colorado. My co-editor, Mark Fraunfelder, and his wife, Carla Sinclair, and some of their friends like Gareth Branwin started it as a print magazine. Oh, I, I was only a teenager then. Yeah, so it was yeah. a zine. Yeah, and I used to sell it. I, I was a bookseller back then. I used to sell it in, my, in the bookstores I worked at uh, and read it religiously. And um, it, it got part of that distribution. Uh, there was a kind of, in the late 80s, there was this wave of distribution for small press zines across the country into places like Tower Records and so on. You may remember that yes. there was just like one day when you could walk into all kinds of like alternative bookstores and yeah. record stores, racks of them. And it was amazing, right? It brought, it brought zines across the country. It was kind of like a precursor to the internet in some ways. And then um, that distributor went bankrupt and uh, folded up owing everyone crap loads of money and sitting on oh. crap loads of their product. And uh, which of course was all sold at a discount to pay the bank, not the publishers. So the, uh, the magazine went on hiatus more or less. And, and Mark and Carl at this point were living in San Francisco and they'd been hanging out with the people who were trying to raise money to start a magazine called Wired and Wired got money. Uh, and Mark went on to be the managing editor at Wired, and Carla wrote, went on to write a novel. And, and um, uh, somewhere along the way, Mark went freelance, and he was uh, writing for the Industry Standard, and he was doing a piece on a new product called Blogger. And he said, you know, I, I, I need to start a blog in order to test out Blogger. Uh, I'll just kick one off based on uh, this old zine I used to edit. Um, and he posted, you know, one or two things a week for about a year. And it was read by 10 or 15 of his friends. And then he broke a big story. He, he actually uh, figured out what the segue was uh, before the press figured it out. So you remember it was oh, called Ginger Hit. or something. Ginger yeah. and all oh, of that stuff. So, yeah. so Mark wow. looked up the patent drawing and found all of the patent drawings that had Dean Kamen's name on them and found a picture of like a Sterling engine attached to a lollipop handle and said, <laughs> I bet you that's it. It's a, it's a lawnmower. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and CNN ran uh, a screenshot from Boing Boing that night, and the readership went from like 40 to 6,000. And he was wow. going abroad for um, a holiday. He was going, or not abroad, he was just going to Hawaii for a holiday for a couple of weeks. And he just profiled me for the industry standard. And he called me up and said, do you want to um, edit Boing Boing for a couple of weeks while I'm out of town? And so, because maybe those, those new CNN uh, readers will come back. And I said, yeah, sure. So I, I jumped on. And uh, when he came back, he said, well, I love what you've done with the place. Why don't you stick around? And <laughs> that's, and that's kind of how we got there. That's great. Did you yeah, sell? Was, uh, it, did you sell Boing Boing, Tom, when you were uh, in Austin in the bookstore? There? No, I think I think it was already gone. We there were back issues at Fringeware. Uh, uh -huh. the, oh yeah, sure. Because Fringe Fringeware was a was one of those places Corey's talking about that had the wall of of zines right. all through the nineties, and right. it was a great place to to find stuff. That's yeah, where well, I up John Lipkowski, John Lipkowski, and that whole crew in Austin were were really kind of part of that early Boing Boing history. We were all on the well together, and yeah. you know there was that whole scene. Well, those were the good old days. That's where hey, some, br some brilliant news uh, had their launch party. That's Tom's at Fringeware. Tom's uh, boing boing. So yeah, <laughs> never never quite took off as well as boing it's boing. That CNN thing. I never looked up <laughs> Dean Kamen's patents. That's that the was key. My that's the key. Yeah, that's it. So uh, Corey, you're kind of it seems to me living a little bit more quiet life uh, these days. You of course were very high profile. Uh, you know when you were with uh, EFF uh, as their uh, European director. Um, and we've talked to you a lot, and you were. Do you feel like you're taking a little time to be with uh, Posey and your wife and write? Or yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, so a couple of things happened. One, I had a daughter, and I really radically scaled back on my travel because I want to see her grow up. Yeah. Um, and so that that kind of um, tightened things up a little. But the other thing was that now that I don't work for EFF, 
uh, I would much rather spend my day writing than talking to the press. So I get, I mean, you must get this too. I get probably like a dozen press queries a day. Uh, you know, we're doing a story on privacy. Could you talk to us? We're doing a story on digital copyright. Could you talk to us? We're doing a story on whatever. And I just prefer people to, um, to EFF or here in the UK right. to the Open Rights Group. Um, because, you know, there's, there's a limit to how much stuff you can do. And I used to do that for a living, and now I don't have to. So I get a lot more, I get to be a lot more selective. I can choose to only talk to the people I find really cool and interesting, like you. Well, uh, we're very grateful. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so that's the other piece. And then specifically, since this, since this New Year's, right after New Year's, I, um, I had a bunch of extra bone taken out of my hip. Uh, it turns out that the reason my back has been so really screwed up for like the last 20 years is uh, I had something called femoral acetabular impingement. So it's when the uh, ball of your hip and the socket of your hip have too much bone in them and they don't rotate very well. And as a result, um, instead of my, uh, my hip moving over my uh, femur when I sat down or stood up, and so my back could arch, instead my, my pelvis tilted and my back okay. didn't arch at all. Oh dear. And just sort of trapped my uh, sciatic nerve. Apparently moderately common, but in, without advanced medical imaging and keyhole surgery, there wasn't much, we couldn't see it, and if we could, there wasn't much we could do about it. So I had uh, keyhole surgery. They stuck a camera in one side of my leg, wow. and they stuck a, a Dremel tool in the other, and oh they just God. ground out all this excess bone. It's pretty cool. Actually, let me see if I yeah. can. You modded, they modded your hip. Yeah, so now he's, right. hacked his, he's hacked his metabolism oh, and modded his hip. So this, is, this isn't the metal phone. one. I have a metal one, too. My wife snuck my fMRIs, or my, my MRIs, off of my hard drive, and uh, sent them to Shapeways, who are a three D printing or no, I materialized three D printing company in in um, there it is uh, Belgium, and they uh, they three D <laughs> rendered them and printed my hip. So I have this in uh, in stainless steel and bronze, and my key ring and my jacket over on the coat rack there. Uh, so this is it. You can see there's a little extra bone in here. So anyway, all my that's all my worthy of a Neil Gaiman. I'll tell you, that's morbid yeah. as hell. Jeez. It's pretty cool. I like, I like having my my hip not. To, I feel like Nigel Tufnell actually. Yes, my actual hip. Yeah. Not to scale, but it's my actual hip, you see. Um, and, uh, Have you thought of making that public domain? Yeah, actually, I'm thinking about putting it up online. But, uh, but my, my, my cartilage had delaminated. They had to, they had to uh, make new cartilage. They shatter the surface of the wow. bone, and then a scab turns into a cartilage. And it just means you can't be weight-bearing for like uh, eight weeks, and then you've got six months of physiotherapy. I spend most of my time in the pool these days. And so, you know, when I'm not writing, because I've got a couple of big writing projects I'm on, um, I'm I'm just doing physiotherapy, so uh -huh. like that's my full time job until you know middle of July more or less. Randall Schwartz says you're now officially a hipster, right? <laughs> that's right. I was, I was so hip, I had hip surgery. <laughs> so let's talk about. I just got uh, this in the mail. I'm very excited. Wrapped by the way in a nice burlap sack, which I thought was mm -hmm. a, was a good touch. With There's a, little... a story about that burlap. Yeah, we what is it? What that. is the story about the burlap? We've preserved it for uh, posterity. We have it right here. Uh, oh, there you go. <laughs> well, so there's this great roaster here in London called um, uh, Square Mile, and uh, one of the founders was the head roaster at Intelligentsia uh, in L.A., who are kind of a legendary uh, coffee roaster. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, I needed something to wrap uh, the books in so that they, they would survive the transatlantic voyage. It's good for a cold winter. That's right. Thought, you look very good. You look like a, a peasant woman waiting for a, a lord to come by and bash her out of his way. Somewhat hirsute um, peasant woman. That's right. So, yeah, so, so poor, I can't afford electrolysis. So, uh, I, and I really I, um, need it. Yeah, I just had these coffee sacks lying around. Actually, I can show you what I had them lying around for. Let me see if I can get this on my webcam. I uh, built these baffles for my uh, oh, these, cool. the horrible strip lighting. 
out of um, out of bamboo and and uh, what a neat and, idea. And coffee sack. Yeah, yeah, and, and so I had them. I had some some coffee sack lying around. And I was looking for something cool to use as my uh, uh, for wrapping material, just you know, more interesting than uh, than bubble wrap. And I literally walked over to my office shelves and was like, kind of pulling stuff out and looking what I have. And I went, oh, coffee sack, awesome. So I tried a little coffee sack wrap, took some pictures, and tweeted it. I said, like, if you got a book wrapped in coffee sack, would you think, oh my god, that's really wicked, or would you think? Why has this guy sent me garbage? And uh, kind of ran, you know, fifty to one, wicked to garbage. And so uh, I, I, I asked the square mile folks, like, do you have any extra coffee sacks? And they were like, Yeah, it's a the few. industrial waste process of roasting coffee. We have a lot of coffee sacks, and they just gave me as many as I would take off of their hands. That's well, great. I'm pleased to say this is a limited edition, number seventy-two out of uh, two hundred fifty. Uh, I guess this is your latest book. I mean, I, I just got it, so. I'm yeah, sure. technically, that, that's right. It's the latest book. There's like three more coming out in the next year, but it's it's the latest. Tell me the story behind this. First of all, there's an SD chip uh, in the front, glued to the front. Mm -hmm. I haven't taken it off, you notice. Oh, well, it's attached with, uh, with Bluetech. You can put it back on. The original thought was that I was going to um, attach it with a, a daub of rubber cement. So you would have to um, right. choose whether you wanted to keep it pristine or I, actually read the SD card. I right. like it this way, though, and I know yeah. what's on here, so I don't need to. I don't need to worry yeah, so much about it. Yeah, well, you're on there. I'm so, on. It, yeah, among yeah, others, so, among Neil Gaiman uh, and many others. I, I can tell you when it started. Um, it was back in 2008. I was at um, Game Developer Conference in San Francisco, and uh, I did a reading while I was there from the book that became Makers uh, that came out later. I guess the next year. And I, I wanted some copies to give away. And normally I just photocopy uh, the manuscript and just staple it at the corner. And so I, I Googled up um, uh, the nearest Kinko's to the hotel I was staying in in San Francisco because I didn't want to lug 70 pounds of paper from London to San Francisco. I just have it photocopied there. And it was pretty expensive to get it printed. And so uh, I, I just on a lark, I went to Lulu and to check out what it would cost mm -hmm. to, to print it there. And it was about the same price. And the books were beautiful. I oh, mean, they're gorgeous. They weren't, they weren't, you know... This, this is library I, I binding. I mean, it's, it's yeah. So that's not from Lulu. That's that's oh, a, okay. that's that. Those are the. I, I figured. Yeah, I'll get to that. So so okay. I said, you know, uh, these are so cool, and the short story collection market. Um, the publishers have pretty much all collapsed. They've disappeared because they're they're the. Um, the market wasn't kind to them, and there was a distributor that went bankrupt. Distributors going bankrupt are kind of a theme in the history of book publishing. And, and you know, I have a, a New York publisher that was doing my short story collections, but it wasn't like they could do much for me. I figured that I couldn't do for myself, so I said, okay, I'm going to do a print-on-demand short story collection. I'll blog about it. I'll, I'll get my friends to write about it. I'll see how many copies I can sell. And from there, the idea kind of snowballed. I said, okay, so uh, it's print-on-demand. So I can change the text every day. What would I want to change in the text every day? And I said, I know. If you send me a typo, I'll fix it the day you send it to me. The next copy printed will have the typo fixed in the book. And um, I'll give you a footnote on that page. So maybe you'll buy nice. another copy, a copy with your name. And I'll monetize typos. What a great idea. Like, yeah, that's cool. And then I was thinking about like in rainbows and some of those other, you know, uh, self-published things. Or, you know, uh, uh, disposed Radiohead. Things, Radiohead and so on. And, and um, uh, also... Um, Nine inch, Nine inch nails and so on. Yeah, and, and how they, they admirably picked off a bunch of different price points, like a pay-what-you-can download and uh, a cheapy CD and then some, like, really expensive stuff. And there was that guy who was a uh, famous studio drummer who, for, like, a hundred grand, would tour with your band. 
for it, you know, like that was kind of the highest end package. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have a whole range of packages. I'm going to have like a free ebook that'll be pay what you can and a free downloadable audiobook that's pay what you can. And I'll have the uh, paperback somewhere between 10 and 15 bucks. I'll do a really beautiful hardcover. And, and there was a shop um, up the road from my office in London in Clerkenwell uh, called Wyvern Bindery. That's a family-owned, beautiful bindery. They do uh, binding for the British Library and, and for the British it's Museum. It's really gorgeous. Amazing hand binding. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have the hand bind it. Yeah. Beautiful edition. Yeah. And then I can set into the cover. I'll set a, an SD card with all the audio all the text, all the covers, I, and I figured on the, for the paperback, hell, I'll do multiple covers because I can, right? It doesn't, right. whatever, it costs me whatever it costs me for the art, but I can do 50 covers and you can choose which ones you want. So I, I, I found four artist friends and I solicited covers from them. Let me ask you. And it all. Go ahead. Hmm? I was just going to ask and you, I thought, Go ahead. <laughs> Damn Skype. I was like, I, I was thinking, you know, I, I, this, is, this is somewhere between a commercial and a cultural endeavor because in the arts, um, there's a lot of stuff that's not strictly commercial. That's just about stuff that we care about aesthetically, artistically, that we just want to see happen. So we go out and we, we like help people. We go, okay, well, this, this old writer who hasn't written anything in a long time has got their first book out in many years and it's great. And we want to see them elevated. And so we talk it up or we blurb a new writer or we mentor writers, painters do this and so on. I thought, you know, like I do this a lot for other people. Other people do this for me. Why don't I make this? Since this is this is about an artist reaching their audience directly, that's really a lot less like one of those straight up commercial ventures, and a lot more like something that's really cultural. So I'll ask for a little help from my friends. I'll see if my friends will read the audio. I'll see if my friends will help me typeset it and so on. Because hell, I do the same for them. And maybe that's what the future is—kind of artistic cooperation, mm. where we oh, all pitch that. in and see how it goes. And in the spirit of that, I'm going to ask my friends for their sentimental paper. Because I just cleaned up my office and found boxes and boxes of stuff that I, I had no reason for saving but didn't want to throw away. Old notes and so on. And, I was, and, I'll, and I'll put those in as the end papers for those hardcovers. And I'll do the, the, that'll make each hardcover really unique because the, it'll have original paper from other writers in it. It's a way of kind of embodying that, that spirit. And at the end of the book, once a month, I'll write a new appendix that has all the financials telling people what's working, what isn't. I'll write it up, and, and I ran into an, an editor from Publishers Weekly and I asked him if he'd be interested in write-ups, and he said, sure. So I'm writing it up approximately monthly for them, all the stuff I'm learning doing, and all the mistakes that I'm making, kind of brutal self-examination sessions about the places where I got it wrong and, and, and where I got it right and where, what's making money and what isn't. And it's been really um, educational, moderately successful, uh, and, and I'm, I'm hoping it will continue to be moderately successful. But I've made more money than I would have from... Um, a short story collection with a regular publisher. I've made as much as I'd hoped I would, but it's by no means over. You, I mean, you, you know, Publishers Weekly put this on the cover because it's so not such a novel uh, mm. to yeah. to coin a phrase uh, idea. Um, so I'm glad to hear it's it's worked well. I mean, I I cherish the, this. I, mean, I was going to ask you about the end papers. So, th uh, what are these? So those are original end papers. I can't see it well enough to tell you which one. Oh, that each is. one There's is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a Flickr set with all of them. They're all, all the writers who donated them agreed to make them Creative Commons licensed. So this is some so of these notes. Each, this is this each is, one is B, It looks like B R I Bry or B R uh, is the signature in here. That Matthew. might be Brian Wood. Uh, uh, scene one. Scene one. It's interesting. And in the back, I love this. It says oh, a yeah, page from my high school lecture notes, spring two thousand nine. That's Tim Powers, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's Tim Powers who wrote um, on Stranger Tides. 
uh, among many other wonderful books. But the new Pirates of the Caribbean book uh, movie is based on one of his novels. So, so you got these guys to donate. I didn't realize these were original end papers. Yeah, so, yeah, that, those are original papers. So, so each, each is one unique. Has got distinctive ones. Yeah, here I've got one over here. Hang on a second. That's so cool. See, I'm really appreciating this more and more. And I've been looking, and I and I do see from time to time the little footnotes at the very tiny in the bottom where somebody has contributed a correction. A typo correction. A typo correction. So here we go. What a great way here's to a, outsource that. Here's an original poem by John Clute, who's one of the best respected critics in the field. Um, and uh, this is um, a note from, from my Harvard Classics research. Oh, this is a Tim O'Reilly Harvard Classics nice. research note. From, uh, from, from something Tim did. Tim also sent me some of his correspondence with um, Frank Herbert. Wow. Uh, his, now that Tim, would be Tim awesome. Web 2.0 O'Reilly, was his first book was a biography of Frank Herbert. He was an English major. The author of Dune. Of course, Tim O'Reilly's been on. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we're, we're working to get him on triangulation. He's out of the country right now. But he's just he's our neighbor up the, up the road in Sebastopol. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Once it gets he's in the Middle East, right? I think yeah, he is. I think he just, so. Yeah. So, so. I know an email yeah. about that. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so. I've been I've been kind of sticking close to home also because um, I've got a job now, which is you know putting books in the mail. <laughs> yeah. and I'm, I'm a publisher now, right? I got to actually be here and uh, you might want to re rethink that one, Corey. I don't. Well, <laughs> I, I don't intend to do it forever. Although I'll tell you what, one of the things that was successful right away were these books, these hardcovers, because there's such a story about them. You know, yeah, they're really yeah, uh, no, just they're really it. tactile and yeah. they're kind of they're, and there's a limited run of them right. and. And all of that. Now, this wasn't and cheap. Just, I, I, I think it was 250 bucks. But, boy, this is my most, right now, my most cherished uh, volume. I just love it. That's right. And, and I think part of it is the price. People are like, wow, look at this. It's yeah. such a, a special piece, you know. Well, it's so also thinking, a little bit of history because I'll be honest, this might be, we might be in the, in the end, end game on this kind of thing. <laughs> these, these are specialty items, well, right? That, that's actually a question I have is, you know, five or six years ago, Corey, you were pioneering the idea of, you know, give away my digital copies and sell my physical copies. And, and the, mm -hmm. the, the ground is shifting underneath that as digital is starting to, in some places, supplant physical copies. And I, and I see a little bit of what you're doing here, which is make the physical copy more than just a physical copy make it make it an item make it a, an object do you have any more ideas about where publishing is going and how you can how you can monetize that and be a paid author because i think a lot of people they think oh yeah cory doctorow he's about just giving away everything it's like no he actually does want to make money he, he wants to make a living at this yeah. yeah well so so first of all i think about the the, the limited editions as um Having deriving their value in part not from the from the notoriety of the digital text that they embody, not the scarcity. So, you know, one of the reasons you would go off and buy a paperback. You know, I'm reading this one right now. It's quite good. It's Mika Sifri's book about WikiLeaks. Um, and one of the reasons you go out and get that is because you can't get the text from anywhere else, right? This is the only place you can go to get the text. It's a uh, it's 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 a scarce thing, right? The the text is scarce. You buy it, you buy the book to get it. But there's lots of objects associated with texts. That are more valuable because the text is really widely available, right? Think of like a, a Shakespeare folio, sure. right? The reason that a Shakespeare folio is worth a lot of money isn't that you can't get the text any any other way. The reason that the Shakespeare folio is worth a lot of money is because the text is everywhere. So one of the things that's characteristic of successful digital works is that they're everywhere. So what can you do to trade on rather than lament the notoriety of a digital work? Um, I've always felt like uh, I can sell printed books by giving away ebooks because, by and large, um, 
the number of people who've never heard of me is much larger than the number of people who would treat uh, an ebook as a substitute for a print book. And, and print books are pretty convenient and handy and so on. And that seems to be working moderately well. So, I mean, so you're a special case then. This isn't something that you prescribe for everybody. You're a special case in that regard. Oh, with the hardcovers, you mean? With yeah. the limited hardcovers or with, with No, just the fact stuff? that you are, in fact, it, this, this, this system of... Well, it's more, the more so, common cases that people aren't well-known. Yeah, I guess that's true. So you aren't that special of a case. <laughs> right, right. I, I mean, I, I, so I guess every artist is, is uh, uh, you know... It starts a, out um, that way. Beautiful anyway. snowflake, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. every artist makes their makes their way in their own way. I mean, that's what it means really to do art as right. opposed to do commerce. It's, it's, it's all right. the unrepeatable stuff that makes true. art art. Uh, and so artists all have their own distinctive careers. I mean, there's only one Neil Gaiman. There's only one, you know, Jay Random writer who you've never heard of. I mean, we're all we're all distinctive in some way. So true. Um, what I I guess I don't know is if you're a writer who um, isn't well known, or if you're a writer who is well known, what mechanism you plan to employ to stop people from getting your book without paying for it if they choose to get your book without paying for it. Uh, I don't know of any plausible way to make computers worse at copying or make it harder to download things from the internet. Uh, at least not one that doesn't have such enormous collateral damage. You know, in the in the first case, you know, you, we can make computers worse at copying by like breaking fundamentally breaking computers. You know, we can turn them all into into proprietary devices that won't run your own software and that spy on you and try to you know second guess what you're doing with them. And that sounds like a bad idea to me. And you can try and make your works harder to copy by like just making them harder to get. Uh, and again, I, I don't know that that's a very successful strategy. I, I always say it, it's hard to monetize. Uh, it's hard to monetize fame, but it's impossible to monetize obscurity, right? No one's ever figured out how to get rich off a book that no one's ever heard of. So, uh, you know, if you don't have a plan for making it harder for people to get stuff without paying for it, then you better have a plan to peacefully coexist with people who get stuff without paying for it. <laughs> and and, and so my true. pitch is, yeah, I, and my pitch is, you know, I would prefer you buy the printed book. Um, with with uh, with a little help, I'm actually soliciting donations because there's no publisher to cut out in the middle. With the other books, where where it wouldn't be fair to the publisher who's doing putting all that work in uh, to just take donations uh, directly. What I've done is I've um, I've I've uh, asked librarians and teachers and people who work in halfway houses and prisons and whatever who want copies for their own libraries to put their names forward, and I pay someone to make a list of of everyone in the world who works at a worthy institution who wants free copies of my books. And then the readers who downloaded the books but don't want the physical object can uh, buy a copy for those for those people, which is kind of it's it's one of those really nice pieces of karma, you know. I, I sure. get the sale, I get the royalty. My publisher records the sale. Uh, their distributors and wholesalers and so on love the fact that more books are selling. Uh, young readers and and people in bad circumstances get access to my books. Uh, people who want to thank me get to thank me. You know, it's it's kind of a, it's a it's a win 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 situation. I'm sorry, my microphone was on. I'm talking to myself here. I'm I, I'm glad that it works so well for you, and I agree that that is the uh, is the real issue. Is that uh, in fact somebody in the music industry I think said this, or somebody at, who should have been in the music industry said this? Your real competition is is the freebie, is the pirate, not you know. And so you do have to coexist with people who will who will steal it, I guess, or borrow it. Yeah, I I, I kind of feel like my real real competition is actually none of those things my real real competition is um sorry my, my camera's a little screwed up let me fix this yeah, here. wait sorry my, you're, you're shrinking that's okay it's yeah. the amazing shrinking dr o <laughs> um my my real competition uh, is all the other things that compete for attention 
That's um, true. You know, yes. I, I, and it, in fact, I think that's one of the, the uh, amazing virtues of printed books is that, um, in a, you know, the downside of a printed book is that you have to be holding the book in order to read it. You know, how many times have you been standing in a line at the right. DMV and wish that you had the book with you and didn't? But the upside of a printed book is when you're holding on to the printed book, there's nothing else you can do with it yeah. apart from read it, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, reading on a tablet where you're like one click, click away from a YouTube video of a man putting a lemon in his nose or, you know, a, a, an angry bird right. knocking over a pig. Right. You know, there's, there's just one thing this, this thing does, and, and you don't need a lot of self-discipline to keep reading. All you need is, you know, interest. I, um, I wonder, though, if uh, if what the future is for this kind of mono attention. I mean, are we all kind of moving in this short attention span world? Well, I think of the way that I, I produce material, which I think it's not the same as consuming material, but it has some corollaries uh, or corollaries for my friends in the United Kingdom. Uh, <laughs> and the, the corollary is that uh, when I'm producing stuff for Boeing Boeing, um, what tends to happen is a bunch of little things that seem like they're disassociated and not not part of a larger narrative, but but have kind of um, they've got like like hairy edges. They've got things that seem like they want to attach to something else. I write them up and I put them on Boing Boing. It's pretty fast. It's not super synthetic. There's a little bit of analysis that goes on, but mostly it's just like here's the thing that's interesting and why I think it's interesting, and bam, it's on Boing Boing. And what happens is that over time those little pieces start to cohere into bigger, more synthetic things, a, a novel, an essay, a short story, a speech. Hmm. And I, I, I bodge them all together, and I, and I stop looking at the Internet, and I sit down, and I do some writing. And I, I do that writing in a way that's very mono-attention, and it's longer form, and it's more synthetic, and it's, and it's just one thing. And I don't do other stuff while I'm writing. And I think that... Um, it's not that we don't have a lot of mono-attention tasks. I mean, you know, Warcraft or any other full-screen uh, video game are, are mono-attention and generally long-term, long right? I mean, you spend a lot of time looking at them. Even, you know, something like um, the, the, the really horrible social games on Facebook that, uh, like Farmville and so on, that, that are actually designed to stop you from ever stop thinking about them, you know, that you have to <laughs> right. continually time your, your, your return to them uh, in order to, to do the next thing and the next so that you can never fully get them out of your head. Um, you know, those require a fair bit of mono-attention. And I think what it is, is it's, it's a little like what's happening to the economy where the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. The, the number of things that we squeeze into very small slivers of attention is getting larger. And the number of things that we give a lot of attention to are getting longer and there's much more competition for those things. It's harder to get into that, into that, you know, rich world. Um, but they're not disappearing. In fact, the one kind of feeds into the other. So the RIA and the MPAA should be fighting against things that take our attention away from them. Well, I think that that's really the, the, the biggest story about, about what's happened to entertainment purchasing is that there's just a lot more options now than there ever was. I mean, even within the microcosm of how many CDs you can buy on any given day, which, which means that uh, the chances of a blockbuster becoming a blockbuster go down. I mean, when there are fewer titles available, when there are fewer titles at your fingertips, you know, the, the statistically it was more likely you'd buy one of those titles that was in a store than one of the titles that wasn't, which meant that the rich would get richer, right? This, the, the titles that attracted sales would get uh, more shelf space, would get more sales, would get more shelf space, and you get blockbuster hits. And then on a macro scale, there's just so many other things that you can do with your time on any given day than watch a movie, watch TV, and so on. I mean, my standard response now when I run into kind of owner's paywalls or geo uh, geocoding, you know, I live in the UK now, so a lot of the media that I want to consume 
uh, is is geo locked, um, like you know, iPlayer and, like, and things like that. Yeah. Hulu. Well, no, no, no. When I want to watch like uh, oh, John Stewart, yeah, it's always yeah. locked. Yeah. So uh, my response isn't. It, it's generally like a kind of momentary twinge of irritation, and but then there's like this queue of 500 other things I can just go off and do. I mean, it's I just bounce off it and onto something else. It's not like I sit here at the you know in front of the internet going. Oh, I wish that there was more interesting things I could look at. I've got all this spare time when right. I sit in front of the internet, this howling void of time that I'm trying to fill with uh, with media. I think I'll shell out for the paywall. I mean, this is the, the when I when I talked about the New York Times paywall, this is the thing that everyone seemed to miss is that I think if your paywall is going to work, the single most important factor about it is what frame of mind it puts people in when they're confronted with it. And I thought that of all the things that were difficult about the New York Times paywall, the most difficult thing was that it's a very complicated offer, right? The terms under which you can buy it and, and, and when you need to buy it and so on. It, it takes a long time to explain, and it feels somewhat arbitrary. I mean, you can only visit it 20 times. No one knows how many times they've visited the New York Times in a month. And to make things even more complicated, they've made it better by not counting some of your visits against it. There's no way to know that either. Um, and so I think that most people, when confronted with the Times paywall, will go, wow, that seems really arbitrary and kind of jerky, and, and I don't really understand what's going on here, and this offer is too complicated for me to understand. I only had 10 seconds to look at a link someone you know posted with a short URL to Twitter or whatever, you know, where, where I, don't, I don't really even know what this story is. It was just a go look at this. Uh, and now I've gotten here and they want some money for me and I can't even figure out what they want money for and what my money gets me. There's other stuff to do on the internet. And, and that was the thing I said a couple of times in, in, in both of the stories I wrote about the New York Times paywall. And everyone seems to have missed it, that, that this is a, it was a commercial critique. I mean, whatever else we think about the Times, I like reading the Times on a Sunday as much as the next guy. But whatever we think about the Times, it's, it's paywall, I think, is structured to make people think that they are irritating greedy weirdos when you get to the point of paying them as opposed to like worthy and useful members of society. I think that's the thing that frustrates me the most about these debates is they're generally they're trying to put them in moral terms. Like you either pay for journalism and support it or you hate journalism. You either steal music and you're a thief uh, or or you're or you're honest and 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 you pay for it and and that's not really what's going on at all. It's it's hard to articulate that it's not about that. It's not about the fact that we don't want journalism. It's not about the fact that we don't want music. It's about the fact that there is a real fact of life in the way the internet works in an infinitely copyable medium that we we have to accept. We have to confront. Uh, and, and, and Corey, I, I have to say, I, I've looked to you quite often as someone who is able to frame this debate in a way that makes more sense to say, you know, hold off, uh, you know, journalism itself, uh, you, you wrote this today on Boing Boing, journalism itself is taking things from people for free and recreating them. It's not an original work out of someone's mind. Well, we don't call that journalism, right? We call that fiction, right? Unless yeah. you're taking something from, you know, you, you've got to take stuff from out there in the world. And it's funny, it's funny because I, I wrote that and someone from the traditional media who self-identified, I'm a traditional media person, seems like a very nice guy, wrote back and he said, well, the reason we think that what you do is parasitic and what we do, if we, you know, if we have, like, not the New York Times, but a lot of, a lot of papers, a lot of local papers these days are 90% where, where the news is, is 90% wire stories. Right. right. And the tiniest crumb of local reporting, like, they just gutted local newsrooms, especially across the big chains. And, and you know, the reason that we think of those uh, papers as not um, parasitic, even though almost all they do 
is take crap from the Associated Press or Reuters, you know, do some minimal, minimal selection and then just publish them verbatim without any framing or commentary or criticism. Uh, but what you do when you take all of the material from across all of the media and piece and pull it together and, and frame it and critique it and contextualize it and con contrast it with other pieces, uh, what you do is parasitism is um, you don't pay the wire services, and we do, and without, without our payments, uh, the wire services would collapse. Um, and since you're not paying us, well, you're not helping us earn money, and maybe you're taking classified ads away from us, so your relationship with us is parasitic. And I think that um, what that did was it, maybe not deliberately, conflated the moral and the commercial case for, for news, right? Um, you know, as a society, if you're playing like sim regulator and you're up in your ivory tower going, okay, well, what, what structures should we have to support, to support the news and why do we want news? Well, we don't want news because newspapers pay wire services, right? That's not their, like, that's not their, their primary moral uh, virtue that they, that they enrich wire services. Newspapers enjoy this special status in our society because they... Um, uh, are part of a democracy, right? They keep us informed and they, 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 they help um, all of our society work. And criticizing and contextualizing and uh, uh, contrasting the news as it's reported is as important as in, the, um, in the overall structure of, of keeping an informed and, uh, electorate as, um, as, as gathering the news is. Indeed, you know, in some cases it's more important. Like, I think if you're in Singapore, it's probably more important to know what the Straits Times omitted and how they frame their stories in order to get it to comply with the state censorship than it is to read the Straits Times. The Straits Times is just, you know, fodder for criticizing the state itself. Um, and so that moral case, right, you, you help an informed democracy function by criticizing material and contextualizing it and analyzing it um, is just as strong, I think, for uh, an aggregation site as it is for for anyone else, even if the commercial case isn't. I mean, I, I think no one would say, well, the, this newspaper is wholly parasitic because it goes around and asks people for uh, accounts of facts and doesn't offer to pay them for it. In fact, it's considered an enormous ethical breach for a newspaper to offer to pay you for right. your story. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I jokingly put on Twitter today that if anyone asks you for a quote, you should tell them you'll give them the first 20 words free. And after that, they have to subscribe. Well, it's no joke. You know, actually, one of the interesting things about, about today's world and about the email world is that a lot of the times if people write to me and say, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to interview you for my paper or for the radio or whatever, uh, and they say, um, uh, are you free to chat on the phone? Um, and I say, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm very busy. I've, I'm, I'm having hip surgery. I've just had hip surgery. I've got a family. I'm got a novel due and so on, they go, well, maybe I could just email you some questions. As though somehow that makes it less time consuming on my end. Well, I understand why that's less time consuming on your end. But indeed, you know, if you send me questions like, uh, you know, what is good and, and what <laughs> makes good art and how should the internet work, you do five seconds work and Easy I write ask. <laughs> yeah. four op-eds, right? Yeah, I, right? I mean, if I wanted to write an op-ed for your newspaper, I, I'm a freelance newspaper writer, I could just call up your newspaper and pitch them. So it, it's really funny because in some cases it really is write an article for me and I will publish it under my byline and get paid for it. Yeah, I, I'm, it's, it's it's a it's a crazy world that 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 has uh, has has changed with all of the amount of, of different. Um, what am I trying to say here? There's there's just efficiency now right there you don't well, email have has screwed us all let's let's face it yeah. uh, that's problem number one it made it very easy to request 
uh, yeah. stuff like that. Well, that's now, the efficiency. What do you do? How do you handle email, Corey? I mean, do you ignore it? No, no, I'm on. I'm an inbox zero guy. Although I'll tell you, what have I got right now? Uh, oh, I've got ten. Oh, uh, but, that's all because of us. We you can right, blame right, us. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so my biggest problem with my email is that I'm time shifted from it. The majority of of my email comes in overnight because oh, my you're in the UK. Yeah, personal life is mostly yeah. centered in the North American continent. Right. I, the uk actually so that's not a problem that's an advantage when i was on a cruise i found that that gave me leave to only gather mail once a day and respond yeah. you don't get that continual ping that those of us who are in the same time zone with our correspondents have to deal with you're right there's but the one major caveat is that five o'clock my time is 9 a.m your time as yeah. you know because i'm yeah. talking to you at five o'clock and you're you're yes you're we're earlier than we any god would allow that's right. When when I'm on, when I'm on the West Coast, I was just in LA last week. We had our annual Boeing Boeing meeting, and um, when I'm on the West Coast, I get home from dinner. I look at my email. There's like two right. real emails from people that I need to reply to. Here, I get home from the 10 minute walk, or I, get, I go to the daycare. That's 10 minutes. I pick up my daughter. I get home. It's like half an hour later. I look at my email. So I leave the office at five. I get home at 5:30. There's 25 red hot urgent emails. Um, my daughter goes out on the porch, plays with the neighbor's kids. I, I fly through as many of those as I can, throw the rest of them into a box to deal with in the morning, and uh, go out, get her, make her a quick supper, sit down to play with her on the sofa, look over at my email, 15 more, right? Uh, um, uh, sit her down in front of a toy after playing with her for a little while, file and take care of those 15, make sure there's nothing white, hot, and urgent, uh, take her upstairs, give her a bath, put her to bed, come back downstairs, 25 more. Um, so the rhythm of my day is completely blown. Um, at, at, uh, by, by that time shift. But in terms of how I deal with email, I have a bunch of stuff that I do that's really uh, uh, kind of survival mechanisms, mechanisms that have evolved over the years. So um, one thing I do is if I reply to an email from you, uh, I automatically add your name to, an, to my address book. And then if I get an email from someone in my address book, it gets filtered into a folder called People I Know. And all the other mail goes into a folder called people I don't know. Mm, I like that. And so I pay a lot more attention to people I know than people I don't know. Um, I also uh, color it a different color. I turn it color it green. And I go through my junk mail folder and I take anything that's green in my junk mail folder and just make sure that it's really junk. Uh, and 99% of the time it really is. But every now and again something falls in there and it's a great way to spot junk mail. Uh, or misfiled. So it's green mail. because it saw it in your address book, or it saw it as, as that's one right. Of, yeah, yeah. Colors it green. I forget what the Firefox, you know, um, you Thunderbird, Thunderbird? Yeah, okay. is, but it's a. Yeah. There's just a like you know. It, I think it's called a priority, but it's just it changes it to a different color. Right. Um, I have a holding pen of stuff that it's very getting things done thing. A holding pen of stuff that takes more than two minutes to deal with, and she gets dropped into a holding pen. That holding pen gets cleared out every morning. Uh, it's one of the, my to-do list items every morning when I sit down at my desk. Um, and uh, I have all of my Boing Boing. If you want to send me a Boing Boing suggestion, you have to use the form. The form does lots of heuristics to weed out the spam and automatically filter it and pre-format it so it's very easy to turn it into a post. So um, uh, I kind of, anytime someone sends me an email that, um, that belongs, uh, as, that's a Boing Boing suggestion, I have an auto-reply that just says, I'm, uh, I, you have to send this in over the form, and if you use this email address, it'll get filtered into my Boing Boing suggestions from people I know folder, and, and we'll get more consideration, so you should do that. Uh, and what else do I do with email? I, um, I use a lot of autoresponders. Uh, mm -hmm. I use quick text, mm -hmm. and so uh, every, anytime I type something more than once, I turn it into a quick text macro. 
and that makes life really easy. The reason um, I, that I ask is you talk about the fact that as, a, as an author, your competition is attention, uh, but also as mm -hmm. individuals, our, our, um, our antagonist is, is limited attention and how to uh, use our attention efficiently. Attention seems to be a big problem in this modern age. It's, it's someone should write a novel about attention economics. <laughs> Gee, but, who uh, could do oh, that? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree. I, I, I think that um, one, of the, one of the coins with which you can pay for attention is attention. Mm -hmm. uh, so people, people feel a reciprocal urge yes. uh, when they are given attention. Yes. So I, I always reply to, to if, it, if, it, if it's an email that isn't, I guess unfair is probably the wrong word, but an email like, uh, it, it, so long as it's an email that I can respond to relatively easily and that seems to be coming from an honest place um, and that isn't dramatically misfiled, I, I reply to it. Uh, I, 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 you know, even if it's just a short reply, I reply to it. And I reply to it as sincerely as I can because I feel like that attention, that coin of attention is repaid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think that paying for attention with money uh, it's one of those. It's one of those behavioral economics things that paying for attention with money cheapens attention. Paying for attention with attention makes it more valuable. Is it is it a form of woofy? I guess it. Well, not quite. I mean, that's the that's this this notional reputational currency from from down and down the magic kingdom. It's not because it's not transitive. You don't get to. It doesn't show up as like a, a pip on your shoulder. You know, I got right. an email from this guy. This guy got an email from me. It's 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 more like. Um, it's, it's in fact the opposite of Woofie. It's a human transaction. It's a really human transaction. Mm. It's the most human transaction. It's mm -hmm. a lot older than money. Mm -hmm. It's actually one of the reasons I think podcasts are really powerful. There's something about hearing the somewhat rough voice of another human being filtered with very little um, kind of organization between you and them right in your ear yes. that makes you feel like you know that person. Yeah. I mean, we all feel like we know, you know, the newscasters that we listen to every day. But when you can hear them and you can hear them coughing a little and doing things that are like not quite professional, that sound like a person and not like yes. a, a, an entity. That's why I eat my lunch online. Not on that's right. <laughs> yeah, distract yourself. You haven't done the audio version of Airbrush Out, everything yeah. that's real. I, That's I right. I, I agree right. with you 100%, Corey. Yeah. Although, you know, and this is not to rubbish at all. There's a guy named John Taylor Williams who's a listener of my podcast who, who actually tracked me down at a, at a steampunk party in London and said, I love your podcast, but as an audio engineer, it makes me want to gouge my ears out with a, with a, with a uh, fork chop. Uh, can, we, can, we just, can we do something to fix this? Send it to me and I'll clean it up. And he does. He cleans it up and it sounds great, but it still sounds human. I mean, it's still me reading, you know, the, 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 the I'll show you the, uh, the cuckoo clock my wife got me for my for my birthday oh, a couple cool. of years ago that's cool uh chimes in the you background hear it in the background it, yeah you can hear the train going by i'm here in hackney and the the, the overland well i'm glad he doesn't night. clean that stuff out because i mean the, that's right. we i get that email uh daily of course yeah. and i usually ignore it because uh it's not fully conscious although now you've now that you've brought it to the surface i can say it's fully conscious but i do i, I do like the uh the burps because um it is authentic and there is a there is a the burps I try not to belch in people's yeah. ears. You know, we've we've taught my daughter to blame other people for burps. <laughs> <laughs> Mommy did it. <laughs> they learn that very quickly, don't yeah. they? Parts too. Yeah, yeah. The podcast is at craphound.com slash podcast. Yeah. And uh, among other things, you read uh, stories. T tell me about, is it always reading or what other things do you do? And you do some interviews, right? 
Well, I just throw, I mean, the, the, the thing about podcasts that always blows my mind that more people don't do is um, podcasts let you syndicate any MP3 pile, file on the internet, right. right? You just put a link to it in your podcast feed. Right. So anytime there's some audio of me somewhere, right? Someone records one of my stories and puts it online because they're all CC licensed, so other people podcast them, including some commercial podcasters like Pod, um, Escape Pod sometimes buys audio that's, rights for my stories and puts them online. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, or anytime I do a conference thing or a radio interview and they pop that online, I throw that in my feed. And then once a week, I actually sit down and record something. Um, I either record some fiction I'm working on. That's how it started. It was, it was fiction in progress or sometimes some finished fiction. Uh, there's going to be less of the finished fiction, I think, because I've, I've read it all. I've actually read pretty much my whole oeuvre, uh, with the exception of a few older short stories that I'm not vastly proud of. Um, I've, I've read a couple of my novels. All the other ones are available as, you know, audiobooks uh, from, from Random House Audio. Uh, and uh, I've read all my short stories and novellas and a uh, fair whack of my essays. Every now and again, I read something else. I read all of Bruce Sterling's The Hacker Crackdown in installments. Wow. Um, I read uh, uh, the uh, Vista security memo that I actually I heard you uh, talking about on Security Now, and I mm -hmm. went out and tracked down by that, that Kiwi guy mm -hmm. uh, that, you, that you had on. So I read that. That was pretty fun. That was, uh, yeah. Lately, I've been reading Mark Twain stories. Um, it's just kind of whatever's on my mind. I read this great Mark Twain story about an earworm called Punch Brothers Punch. That's kind of like Mark Twain presaging the namshub of Enki from Snow Crash. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Um, Escape Pod, you, since you gave it a plug, let's mention escapepod.org because that's a, it's that, as you say, a commercial podcast that reads each week a new sci-fi story. And I'm glad to hear that they actually license your stuff to, to read it. That's great. Well, yeah, they're great. They're really terrific folks. Uh, Mer Lafferty, who's taken over the editorial uh, editor-in-chief of all the Escape Pod podcasts because there's pod, Escape Pod and Podcastle and Pseudopod, the horror one, which is a great name. Um, she's a former student of mine, and she's a wonderful writer. Oh, and she's doing really good stuff. So they've just bought a couple of stories from me. Um, to coincide with the uh, publication in uh, anthologies. So a, a couple of stories were commissioned from me for anthologies. Uh, and so when those anthologies come out, they're going to podcast one of the stories with the blessing of the editors of those anthologies. And I have to apologize to her because we just brought escapepod.org down. Yeah, I can't get it to load either. However... <laughs> Isn't it escapepod.info or is it escapepod.org? Um, maybe it's .info. I, I see .org, but I can't get to it. So... Um... When I Googled escape pod, I got .org, and it says it's not the audio oh, yeah. podcast. No, you're right. features. It is dot yeah. yeah, no, that's them. <laughs> Sorry. We just, just brought them to their knees. We tweeted uh, them. <laughs> so let me get you started. I don't want to wind you up too much, but um, congratulations on your success in uh, eradicating uh, digital rights management from all media, future and <laughs> present. Oh, and, I wish. Uh, and how, can we declare victory? I don't think so. Um, I think we're seeing lots of it in new guises. Uh, we're seeing it in the iPad and, and the iOS ecosystem. Um, even Android has got some DRM in it. Um, there's, uh, it's certainly all over the consoles. Um, and uh, still, but don't you know... You, don't you think the fact that the music industry's kind of given up on it uh, maybe makes others start to say, well, maybe, we, maybe it doesn't work? I mean, they're basically saying it didn't work. I agree. I mean, every now and again, you get crazy people who say, oh, well, it, it worked well enough, but they had to give it up for some other reason. But, but I, I, I mean, I always said it didn't work. I, I mean, and it oh, clearly it doesn't, it, it really doesn't work in like, in like uh, e-books, right? I always say, you know, anyone who thinks that you can stop 
um, a uh, an open digital version of an ebook from being made from uh, a DRM version has never met a typist. You know, we, we we solved that problem a long time ago. Like leaving aside all the other ways that we can solve that problem, behold the typist. There, there is typing. Um, yeah, and get ready uh, for know, a like, DRM. It's not on. like they're in short supply. And yeah. get get ready for this fight to start all over again on 3D printing and DRMing CAD files and, and, hit and things bones. like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I just gave it. So I just gave a lecture about this uh, at the University of Toronto I School, and then I reprised it last week at Claremont College, uh, Claremont McKenna College's uh, Athenium Night, and they haven't put that online yet, but they will be shortly. And it's a talk that I call a little bit pregnant, mm. and it's about the idea that uh, there are a lot of people who would love to control, for reasons good and bad, the things that a general-purpose computer can do, um, and some of them have even more regulatory juice than the record companies and the film companies do. I mean, those guys are, are really big hitters. They hit way above their weight when it comes to regulation. But um, I think that the, 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 you know, there are people like lurking in the wings when it comes to 3D printing, when it comes to bioprinting and, and nanoscale or, or mesoscale printing, who've got um, uh, good and bad reasons for wanting to control what these things can do. And the regulation that we reach to in almost every case, just almost reflexively is, well, okay, if we don't want people to print devices to disable low jacks, or if we don't want people to print devices to mod semi-automatic to automatic uh, in firearms, or if we don't want people to uh, print superbugs, or if we don't want people to reprogram their software-defined radios to interfere with um, emergency radio channels, can't we just install something on those computers that are at the heart of all those devices that looks for the wrong kind of program and interdicts it. And this is where we get into a little bit pregnant because once you design a computer that has a list of allowed programs and a list of prohibited programs, mm. then you essentially design a computer that will say no sometimes to its owner even when it's in the owner's interest that it say yes. Mm. Right? So even when the owner wants it to say yes, a third party is remotely setting policy on that general purpose computer, and that policy is against the interests of its owner. And that doesn't end well. <laughs> that doesn't end well in a world in which general purpose computers are embedded in our phones and embedded in our uh, thermostats, embedded in the cameras over our, uh, over our uh, laptop screens. I mean, we already saw that there was a school district in Pennsylvania that subverted the operating system on its students' computers so that it could turn on the camera without turning on the little green light that said mm -hmm. the camera was on so they could watch their students. And it turned out that they were doing really creepy things with it. They were watching the students in their underwear. They were watching the students' parents right. walking around naked. They were doing all kinds of creepy stuff that we don't want them doing. Once you design computers to attack their owners, once you design general-purpose machines to betray their owners' interests... You go down a path that, that ends with, you know, totalitarianism. And without trying to sound too alarmist here, you know, I fully expect that when my hearing goes, that the thing that I stick in my ear won't be an analog hearing aid. I don't even know if they make such a thing anymore. It will be a digital computer connected to some electronics. I want to know that my sensorium reports faithfully to me and that when I ask it to run software, it does so on my behalf without asking me whether or not I'm authorized to run that software. And that it isn't, it isn't designed to have operating modes where it executes code without my, uh, without my knowledge and the code that if I knew it was there, I would try to eradicate. Um, and I think that we're, we're just at the beginning 
of that stuff. You know, Bree Pettis, who started MakerBot Industries in New York, is a wonderful 3D printing kind of visionary entrepreneur. After he got his first takedown notice for a, a copyrighted 3D model, uh, sent me an email that was kind of tortured about how he felt like, you know, 3D printing had just lost its innocence. It was all going to be copyright wars from here on in about, about uh, 3D files. And I said, you know, I think copyright is actually not where you're going to find the real problems with, um, with 3D printing because most of the people who are in a position to copyright a 3D object and who care about the destiny of a copyrighted 3D object, they don't play very well in Congress. They're not really good at playing the legislative uh, agenda. But I'll tell you who has enormous legislative weight or judicial weight and who's really threatened by what you're doing. It's the magistrate in Alabama where sex toys are illegal. Uh, who mm -hmm. discovers that people in this jurisdiction They're are downloading sex toys on their desk <laughs> and issues a Jesus. bench warrant for you, and you change planes one day in the Southland, and you're taken off the plane in handcuffs. It's Mattel, the day that someone figures out how to print anatomically correct interchangeable Barbie torsos. Yeah. The, you know, those people are super litigious, play um, the legislature and the, and, the, and the regulators and the judiciary like a fiddle and are way more freaked out by this stuff than any copyright holder would be. And I listed off like a dozen people who have way more cause to be weirded out by 3D printers than any near copy. Copyright holder. Poor Bree. I mean, uh, he was just he was just a little worried, and now you've terrified him. <laughs> well, and and the point is that we we thought that we were just getting over this stuff, but yeah. you know there are lots of people who, for reasons totally orthogonal to copyright, want to run DRM and spyware on your computers. I mean, right. yeah, you know, there's a there's a great um, parable in video games because you know back in the days of consumer packaged software, when there were stores filled with boxes of code. Um, the video game makers said, oh, my God, everyone's pirating our games, and if we don't get bailed out uh, with law that really punishes those people, we're, we're doomed. The video game industry will be wiped off the face of the earth. And, like, nobody cared because as far as every legislature w was concerned, um, video games were destroying, you know, the fabric of the world's youth. And so they just had to figure it out on their own, and, and they abandoned more or less packaged software models and went to service models. So it doesn't really matter how many times you pirate a Warcraft disc. It's not, they don't really care about the, like, 30 bucks that you spend on the disc. They care about the 15 bucks a month forever to play WoW. And um, you can't pirate a WoW subscription. I mean, it's, I mean, I guess you could steal someone's credit card. But it doesn't matter how many times you copy the CD, you still have to buy the, the subscription from them. So they've got like a, a piracy native business model. But they still want DRM. And they want DRM not to stop you from copying stuff. They want DRM so that you don't run cheatware. And so mm -hmm. they install with the CD, non-negotiably, a piece of spyware called Warden that you agree when you click through their fine print has the right to examine every file on your hard drive and report back on what it's found to Blizzard, you know, giant entertainment company. Um, not because they care one whit about copyright, but we end up in the same place, right? We end up voluntarily installing spyware on our computers. Well, boy, you've, you've cheered me up immensely, Corey Doctorow. Yeah, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't leave uh, without getting a little, uh, little DRM conversation uh, in there. We miss your firebrand... Uh, uh, fighting for uh, the good guys uh, from EFF, but uh, they're still doing a great job. And they I'm really are. And I've got, I've got good news, right? So the bad news is, as an activist, I believe that if we don't do something, things could get really bad. But as an activist, I believe that if we do something, we can change it, right? That's what it means to be an activist as opposed to, you know, someone who's, like, going to cut their wrists. Yeah, you a know? pacifist and, like and, me. So and, what, what is your prescription? 
Well, so it, it's multifaceted. I mean, at the, at, the, at the very least, I think we can support EFF. I, I acknowledge that it's hard in a lot of our lives to get away from DRM ecosystems. The game is rigged, right? There's, there's just stuff you can't do without touching DRM. It's very hard to be pure, but one of the ways that you can try and correct things, you know, you can't just vote with your wallet. You can, uh, by not buying products, you can vote with your wallet by supporting EFF, by joining their mailing list, by participating in their legislative mail-ins. I mean, you can turn that one atomic effort that you make when you say, okay, I'm not going to buy this because it's DRM. You can aggregate it with lots of other people who feel the same way about you and change policy that way. And I've seen EFF do that any number of times. I mean, I've never encountered an organization that spends less to do more, more effectively. And there are sister organizations to EFF all over the world. In Germany, there's Netzpolitik, and in, in um, uh, the Netherlands, there's uh, uh, Bits of Freedom, and in Germany, there's also Chaos uh, Computer Club, and here in the UK, there's Node2ID and the Open Rights Group, and in Canada, there's uh, Online Rights Canada and uh, Fair Copyright for Canadians, and so the, all over the world, there are local organizations that are doing this stuff. And then the other thing is um, to vividly imagine and to inform your friends about the potential consequences of surrendering control over the computers in your life. And I think the problem right now with, um, with, with control of, over our computers with DRM and the sister technologies to it is that um, the, the moment at which it bites you in the ass is way down the line from the moment at which you decide to consume right. it. Right. Uh, it's a little like, it's a little yeah. like you know, being overweight, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's, you don't, if, if every time you ate a pint of ice cream, another roll of flab immediately appeared on your gut, you'd never eat another tub of ice cream right. again, right? It's the, the, the disconnection between the action and the response are, is so wide that it's really hard to learn from that mistake. You know, it's like, it's like smoking. When I gave up smoking, I smoked for more than half my life, and I, I went to a doctor, and he said, if your only reason for not smoking is that in 40 years you're going to get cancer, it's not going to work because when you're craving a cigarette next week, not getting cancer in 40 years is not going to be the tangible benefit that keeps you from reaching for one. You need a better reason, otherwise you'll never give it up. And, and so, you know, I had to vividly imagine lots of reasons to give up smoking in order to get to the point where, where I could accurately assess in the moment, as the cigarette was headed towards my lips, the potential consequences of it. And I think that we need to do that for DRM and spyware generally. And for, for those in your audience who are hoping to give up smoking, here's, here's what did it for me. I, I sat down and I realized that um, I, was, I was spending two laptops a year huh. on cigarettes huh. and that that money was going directly to companies whose mission in life was to kill me. And so uh, I, I gave it up, and now I buy a laptop every year, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I feel like I'm saving money. <laughs> you need to buy a laptop every year. I'll never forget the beat-up shape that Mac, a 13-inch MacBook was in when you stopped by the screensavers. What do you use these days? Are you uh, Linux still? Yeah, well, at the risk of uh, annoying the Apple jihadis, uh, I'm, uh, I, I switched to ThinkPads and Linux. Ubuntu Linux just works. In fact, in lots of ways, it works just, just works better than a Mac. Um, uh, particularly because of the way all the software is packaged together. It makes it really easy to migrate to another machine. Um, and and that's, that's a function not of it being Linux, but of the software not being proprietary. So they can, they can package it a lot better, and I, the updates are managed a lot better. Um, I, I use Ubuntu. I'm, I'm using 10.10 now. I'll be going to 11.4 at the end of this month. It, it works great. Um, I've, I've, really, I've literally like never had a problem installing it. In fact, I had an old ThinkPad that... Um, 
our, our old babysitter uh, went back to college and she needed a laptop and I had an old ThinkPad and I said, okay, I'll install XP on it because she needed to run some oh, Windows dear. software. Mm -hmm. Oh, dear. And so I got the, I had an XP disk that someone at Microsoft had sent me that was like an actual fully licensed XP disk and it wouldn't install on the ThinkPad because it was a tablet. I had to write to IBM and have them send me a stack of six disks and install them and update and so on. And to get Ubuntu running, it's, it's literally like you download an you download image, it. you put it on a thumb yeah. drive, you stick it in, you reboot, yeah. you go install now. Easy. Right? And there it is, right? Yep. You got Linux. So I've got an X200 now, um, and uh, they're rock solid. They're smoking fast. They're really lightweight. Uh, when I want longer battery life, I switch to a heavier battery. When I'm walking around in town, I've got the smallest, lightest battery. Um, and uh, got a built-in SD reader. I, I uh, threw out the hard drive and bought a 500 gigabyte uh, SSD, which is Isn't that so sweet? Fast. Isn't that it sweet? It actually takes me longer to enter my password than it does to reboot. Wow. Yeah. 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 And smoking. kids, if you quit smoking, you can have that smoking That's machine. Right. <laughs> and, and it's five days until the X220 comes out, and I'm going to buy it. My wife is switching to them, too. She's been a Vio person because she's a gamer. Uh, she's been a Vio person Ew. for a long time. And she's had it. Uh, she's mostly gaming on consoles anyway. She wants a work machine that just works. And the Vios, getting service from them is such a pain in the ass. And they, they break if you look at them cross-eyed. Uh, and her only uh, breaking point was she doesn't like using the little track nipple. And she wanted a, a trackpad. Yes. Yes. And the X220s have got both of them. So oh, nice. we're, we're buying a pair of X220s in a week. Oh, his and her X220s. Isn't right. that sweet? So the only difference would be the stickers. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got on yours? Oh, like a million. I take it out of the dock and show it to you, but then I... Well, hang on. I can probably get the camera Don't, around me. Yeah, and if, and if, by the way, if this breaks no, no, Skype, no, well, no, we'll just no, have no. said goodbye. It look at look at all the books you have on the bookshelf. Oh my oh, God, yeah. that's well, your. This is, this is not much, actually. This is this is after throwing out like ten thousand books. That looks like the Austin bookstore, Tom. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. And then there's there's my books over there. That's wow. that's my stacks that of, great? of personal supplies. Oh, you got a great playroom, Corey. I'm jealous. That's oh, I fantastic. Do. My man cave kicks out. Look at the table I made. I love. So you that. see that table? Giant sheet of plexi on four giant industrial wheels. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm super super happy about that. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's great. And I got a couple of Roombas. My, every night, my robot's cleaning Oh, look at that. Office. He's got little yeah. robots cleaning his, his man cave. It's, I, I keep wanting to, to play the, you know, the Sugar Plum Fairy song. With <laughs> yeah, right. They now have scubas that'll clean your toilet, so uh, you, you're, you're <laughs> set. <laughs> I, actually, you know what I want is a dusting bot, because I got so much oh, junk, yeah. and yeah. Uh, the dust really uh, aggregates on they it. They just so need I want the flying Yeah. yeah. Corey, well, it's so fun visiting with you. I really thank you for your time today. Oh, it was lovely chatting with you. Yeah, you're just the greatest. Uh, Craphound.com, if you want to uh, to find out what Corey's up to and get copies of all of his books, including the latest with a little help, uh, either ebooks or uh, or audiobook audio read book. in part by Leo Laporte with I, contributions by Will Wheaton and Neil Gaiman and many other great luminaries. People on this. You didn't uh, when Sissidman's Rule the Earth is not in this. I thought it was for some reason. No, that was in my uh, previous one and overclocked. That's, right. That's okay. right. Overclocked. If you want that one. But this, this has the things that make me weak and strange get engineered away, which was a Jonathan Colton song. That's right. That's right. And it's got a, it does have a Sysadmin story in it. It's got a story in it called Epoch. So one of the things I did with this book was I thought, I'll, uh, after the book comes out, I'll auction off a new story for it. Oh, uh, and then I'll get this little news hit. If you want to, you know, you can, you can pay me 10 grand to write a new story, and then I'll put it in because it's print on demand so I can add more stuff. And, <laughs> and it's uh, in there. <laughs> um, yeah, and what happened was, uh, was, was actually before it came out, 
Mark Shuttleworth from the Ubuntu project uh, heard that I was going to do it. And this isn't why I use Ubuntu. I was using Ubuntu long before this. And he bought the commission. And he said, will you run a story? Uh, will you write a story about um, uh, the Unix rollover, the 32-bit Unix rollover? Oh, yeah. and in 2038. That's right. And the person who has to euthanize the, the, the first AI because <laughs> it won't survive rollover. Oh, wow. The doomed uh, rogue so, AI is called Big Mac, and he is yeah, my responsibility, cool. says the first line. Yeah, there's a lovely reading of that by, um, by Jesse Brown, who does uh, a um, search engine on TV Ontario, to do it for CBC. I, I, just, uh, I just think you do the greatest stuff. Don't forget, of course, uh, he's also an editor at boingboing.net and writes practically every day for Boing Boing. Um, you do the greatest stuff. Oh, you do. No, you do. <laughs> no, you. No, you. <laughs> Corey, uh, always I, a pleasure. I think you guys are awesome. Well, thank you. And when you come out here next time, uh, we'll probably have our studio done. We're building a playhouse down the street. Maybe we'll Ooh. have a, a plexi a coffee table on uh, industrial strength wheels. That's a, that's a awesome. good idea. I'll tell you what. Put brakes on it. Because I got the wheels with no brakes. <laughs> Oops. And this thing weighs like 100 pounds, right? And once it starts rolling, it just keeps going. <laughs> Yeah, know. this is how to teach Posey about mass. That's right. Well, <laughs> the London hack space is just upstairs, so we go every now and again, and she plays with the laser cutters. I figure, oh, you know, my yeah. kid's not going to get maimed by falling off a playground apparatus. She's going to have an entire limb excised <laughs> by a laser cutter. Thank you, Corey. Have a great evening. Right. Thanks, Corey. See Take care. Corey Doctorow, uh, craphound.com. What a, what a pleasure it is always to talk to Corey. One of the smartest guys out there, but also one of the nicest, and, uh, and I think... Um, uh, a true gentleman, a mensch, if I may say so. And so, uh, and fighting the good fight. Yeah, super talented yep. and super smart. Yep, yep. And he's still listening, so we're just going to keep saying nice things and about gorgeous. him until he, <laughs> until he goes away. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Corey. We'll see you. <laughs> I love it when we do that. We, we say nice things. You know, it's kind of almost a, a okay, chance to hear your eulogy. Yeah, he's gone. Now we can say the truth. It's almost a chance to hear your eulogy yeah, right. before you pass away. It it's a yeah. little bit like that. Yeah. So uh, that concludes this episode of Triangulation. We enjoy doing this show so much because it's just a chance for me and Tom to talk to uh, the most interesting people in the world. Yeah. We'd love to hear your suggestions uh, for it. You can always email me, leo at twit.tv, if you've got an idea for somebody you'd like us to interview. Eileen is standing uh, right here. We have somebody exciting coming up. Uh, is it, a, it is a question mark who will be next... Yeah, we're going to be actually. That's right. We're going to be in Las Vegas well, next we, Wednesday we for NAB. That'll go in. We oh, Mike, Michael, Michael Robertson, Robertson at the end of April. We wanted to get him. That's uh, that's fantastic. We got him. Founder good of job. MP3.com and MP3Tunes.com. Yeah. Eileen Rivera is a good Lindos. Lindos. We can ask about yeah. Lindos. Uh, we may be able to snag some people at NAB. They're, the NAB show, uh, which is next week in Las Vegas, we're the official. They say podcast, but I'm not going to say that. The official netcaster for the NAB show. And uh, we have some great people lined up, but there are other very interesting people in there. We've, we've already tried to put out feelers to Julius Janikowski, the chairman of the FCC. He's just going to be in and out. I don't think we're, I would love to get him. We're going to try. Uh, James Cameron, the director, is also speaking. He's giving the primary keynote there. We're working on him, too. We've had no's from their houses, but uh, we will not give up. We will prevail. Thank you all for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time on Triangulation.